From beyond the farthest reaches of our galaxy they come. Two brains pulsing with a strange energy. These space brains come to share their love of science fiction movies. Hi, and welcome to Space Brains, the show where we joy watch sci-fi movies and talk about what was good and what was great. I'm sorry, and this is Mark. Hiya! Tonight we're talking about the science fiction film Love and Monsters for episode 58. Love and Monsters came out in 2020, and it's readily available on a couple of the streaming services currently, like Netflix. Um, so check it out. In tonight's episode of Space Brains, we will reveal what we thought about the film. The ins and outs of narrative and film language, plus a deep dive into a specific piece of science that the filmmakers are proposing. Love and Monsters was directed by Michael Mathers, and it was written by Brian Duffield and Matthew Robinson, based on a story by Brian Duffield. So turn back now if you haven't seen the film, and go watch it. And tune back, because we're going to go through all the spoilers, and we wouldn't want you to spoiled. Warning! You've been warned. You Trust. have been warned. And you need to be warned, because is this film about monsters falling in love, sorry? Or loving monsters? In some places, you have to pay extra for that. Oh, but not in this movie. Not in this movie. This movie is a two <laughs> of my favourite topics, which is love. Uh, well, I couldn't really say love's not necessarily my favourite topic, but Ooh, it's a good like. topic. Monsters. I do love monsters. I do love monsters. And the monsters in this film are those particular ones that we probably all think or dream about or have nightmares about when we're little children, right? Like, like it's the beast in the garden that's just amplified, massive. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that is... 12 stories high. It's that old school sort of I, I even story. have a story about a monster frog that scared the crap Ooh, out of me. Maybe you have to tell us later. Yes. So Love of Monsters, the movie, not uh, Surrey's Love of Monsters, is about that uh, a main character called Joel has survived a monster apocalypse. And it's seven years later. He's a sort of lovable, hapless guy. And he leaves this cozy underground bunker on a quest to reunite with his ex... Ex... Ex-girlfriend. Uh, ex girlfriend. Ex-lover, girlfriend, something. Yes. One of those things. <laughs> the, way you're, the way you're questioning that, it's like you've never had an ex, sorry. I haven't. No, you haven't? Okay. Well, I'm not, I don't know if we should go down that path tonight. What was your number one takeaway from Love and Monsters, sorry? My number one takeaway from Love and Monsters is... Well, it's two things. One... Uh, apparently, it's cool to be an Australian who brews his own beer. Of course. Of course. What's and I, not wrong with that? That's I cool. do That's both cool. of those things, so therefore, I must clearly be, one, cool, and two, <laughs> a villain. Okay. Shame, right. shame that. Yeah. Now, pure reference to our good friend, Dan Ewing, yeah. who responded to one of my uh, tweets once, so that was kind of cool. <laughs> he has responded on Instagram for Space Brains when we've looked at Occupation, of course. So if you haven't checked out Occupation, great Australian sci-fi, we've looked at 
both Occupation and Occupation Rainfall, and Dan is in those films, and he is in Love and Monsters. Which was filmed in Australia. It like was, him. yeah. Quite well. So He's a good guy, that guy. Mark, is this a hope, a warning, or an experiment? I think this is an obvious hope film, and it's because, to me, the main character goes looking kind of the quest for love in this apocalyptic world. And realistically, uh, all the humans pretty much help on that journey, including the original people in his bunker. They kind of like, they don't really fight him leaving the bunker uh, because he's, you know, questing for his ex, his lover. Well, the nice thing is that they they don't want him to leave, but it's it's genuine love yeah. for him, which means, means they're not trying to hold him back either. No, they don't want to hold him back. But they do want to express to him that they would really prefer it had he stayed. Yeah, and I, and I think they also want him to stay because they feel that it's, you know, he's just going to get killed out there. Like, yeah. stay, you st- you know, like, you don't go, you know. And, and, and likewise, along the journey, he meets a couple of other people that they do help him. Um, and again, then, to me, the hope comes back in the climax that he's looking for his love. He finds her. She has moved on. And for him, then, the answer is, oh, I need to go back to my original bunker family and then also save them, like take them on, like let's find a better place. It's it's a and, wonderful thing. Yeah, and I think again it's it's there's hope in there. And then also the whole premise of the film, why we have an apocalypse for this story is that there was a meteor coming and humans did the human thing, which was try to blow it out of the sky. I, I do love this radiation. opening, yes. Yeah, yeah. And we'll get to it in a minute. But that radiation then affected, like, you know, the animals living on this planet. Um, and, of course, that is not very hopeful, like humans annihilating themselves. But then the fact that humans live on, and we see this quite often in apocalypse stories, I think, that there can be nasty humans in an apocalypse, but then quite often there is most humans are trying to survive and there's hope in that, I think. I've, I'm going to have to fully agree with you. This is definitely hope. There's no warning here. No. There's, um, you know, I suppose you might sort of say, be careful how many nukes you launch at asteroids. <laughs> but <laughs> that goes without saying. I think it does. So what was your favourite scene, sorry? <clears throat> My favourite scene... Um, again, there's actually several, but I really... Just pick one, pick one, come on. I really like the scene where he's fine, hiding from the, uh, uh, the the queen sand gobbler oh, yep. with Dog. Mm. And Dog sees his red dress mm. over in the water and there's just that, you know, he's, he's been holding the dog's mouth shut and he says, <laughs> no, don't do it. There's a nice bit of... It's comedic, yeah. but at the same time, a bit stressful. Now, I watched this with the kids, yeah. and they were really picking up. And kids are a great barometer for the effectiveness of a scene because they were both um, amused and delighted that they knew the dog was going to go for this red dress <laughs> because yeah, we've got a dog and we know what dogs are like. Yeah. But at the same time, they're going, no, you stupid dog, don't do it. <laughs> so I, I really liked it. Yeah. There, there are plenty of other scenes I like. Mm. I could go on forever, but that one there sort of stands out. As being, it's just um, a nice way of having both tension and yeah, drama and a relationship, but also a, it's a bit humorous, it's a bit lighthearted, uh, and it leads into that you know defining scene mm. where he blows the, the sand gobbler up and, and overcomes a lot of his fear. You know, he yeah, he yeah. becomes the the survivor he needs to be. Yeah. 
and and that's that like it's a lovely slow motion moment where he jumps and throws and then it goes in a full speed well, is that perfect sort of tension in a film like you've got something that is going to give you away right like so he's there with the dog and the dog is like mm. <laughs> I want that red dress and we know that because that's reminding him of the owner and so it's a nice tension building scene isn't it that we we the audience are watching going dog don't bark don't bark you know and you're right the kids get that um, but it's a, it's a clever technique in that and I think we've seen that scene in so many films but in this one what's interesting is they've used a dog to kind of be the revealer you know yeah. like the giveaway you know, it's a, it, it could be a super I've seen the super scary film you know and the person's underneath the car and they're like they're about to sneeze or something uh, the right? sneeze like, or something drips it's like going to drip in their face on or their face and it's like how long or they're holding their breath the good old know? standing on the hand yeah you know you're hiding yep, under the yep. bridge or something and there's, the bad guy stands on the hand yeah. and, and the person's like really holding it back and then they twist on the yeah. hand and yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's been done before, but it's like great that it's a dog because like we know a dog is probably not going to be as controlled as a human. Maybe, maybe. <laughs> We've got kids. We know what they're like. Yeah. Uh, I know. It's, but yeah. And dogs are, I think, sort of inherently funny. Yeah, well, it's funny how he like he kind of just like grabbed the snout of the dog. Yes. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, well, I've I've done the exact same thing with yeah. my dog. And he's, uh, he's sort of been mucking about too much, and you, you hold his snout shut, yeah. and he just there's a particular look dogs give you when when you hold it. They're like, what what's going on? What the heck? Yeah, so it's quite good. Uh, and and uh, do you have any particular scenes you like? Uh, ooh, I like the. Um, What's the robot called? Mavis. Mavis. I like the Mavis yeah. robot. Yeah. I would have. Li- I would have liked to have mentioned that scene yeah, as well. But... Um, I just got a bit caught then in the the cow as well. <laughs> um, but yeah, the Mavis when he when he comes across Mavis the robot, you know, and it's a nice setup, isn't it? Because we've had one Mavis early in the bunker, and he and he says, "Oh, well, I'm here with a Mavis," uh, but she doesn't say much because, and I'm sure none of them really do. And so then later in the film, when he comes across that Mavis, and she's got a little bit of battery. You know, um, I thought that was really nice and it was interesting because they're a source of knowledge and also like a good robot, you know, it's willing to donate its battery to a human, which is what robots would do, right? Like the scientific side of a robot, the whole point is to help the human get their goal achieved and Mavis does that. So I really liked that sort of scientific element element of it as well. Um, but it was kind of like a... a sneaky way the writers bringing in another character without it being a, a human character as well. yeah it was able to, a temporary add-in uh because we're introduced early on to the first mavis mm. and it's it's something he's wanted to do as soon as you see the mavis there you know he's going to stick around and then it, it announced it has 51 minutes of battery left or something else so yeah. you know it's not going to be around for long no it's it's going to add its insight and he can't uh, take it with it because it's injured and, you know, yeah. And it's a bit of an example. This film, were, before we started uh, recording this, we're talking about the fact that this film is kind of like a really good example of these sort of um, hero's journey style movies. Mm. We, yep. It's like Star Wars and The Hobbit and a few of these other ones. And you have to have these little interludes where they meet an advisor who provides insight. And Mavis is one of them here. Definitely, definitely. And so what did you think about the monsters? I mentioned before, like, this is a science part of this. I know later we'll come back to the science-y stuff for you. But just briefly, 
I loved these types of monsters. Like these monsters were cool. They were the monsters that I think like most kids, I mean, you said you watched this with your kids. You know, this is kind of the stuff like when I was a kid, this, this, this was where my imagination went. Um, I think also from a, like, you know, so we, we take an ant and we blow it up. Remember honey, I shrunk the kids and there's the giant ant and yeah. the rider. And then there's the scorpions, the bad one. Like I remember being a kid thinking, Oh, that's like the, like, yeah, scorpion massive. That would be really terrifying. Um, and I'm, and I'm sure there's, you know, I'm just thinking eight legged freaks where the spiders are massive and, you know, there's lots and lots of stories out there. It also feels a bit of a homage, maybe more to those, like, you know, the blob. You know, science and, fiction and film. The, and, uh, is it, oh, I think it's just called Them. Them, yeah. yeah, yeah the a- ants one. coming in from... Yeah, I, I think also being the cold-blooded creatures, which yeah. immediately puts in insects yes. and, you know, yeah. lizards and frogs and toads and mm. scary stuff. And, and I mentioned I had a, a story about a frog when I was... Uh, I don't know how old I was. I would have been nine let's say nine, eight, nine, somewhere yeah. around there. We had a sand pit in the backyard. Yeah. And I was digging in there with like a, um, uh, yeah, like a weeding implement. Yeah. It's digging in this. And I sort of scratched away a bit of sand. And yeah, there was like a, a, a weird green, black mottled thing exposed, like, like, a, like a little wall or something yeah. in the sand. And I went, what, what the hell is that? And so I sort of poked it just gently to see what it was. Yeah. And it sort of moved and writhed, and then and it was, I just couldn't identify what this was. So there's this weird sort of blobby, like a, maybe a thing is like a huge slug or something. We started blobbing out of the sand onto, and I, I was I was freaking out because I didn't know what this thing was. Like it, it looked like it was just kept coming and coming out of the sand. Yeah. Uh, and and I backed away, and I was like, "What the freaking hell?" Turned out it was a frog yeah it had been asleep in my sand pit you know as they do they bury down in the wet sand and yeah. and i disturbed it and it sort of extricated itself from there but for the there was a good few seconds which felt like a lot longer Eternity where it, a little, sorry. its space its shape sorry couldn't be identified and it was just sort of oozing and wobbling and and it was a weird color and it was definitely something alive but i couldn't identify it yeah and you could imagine if that had just kept coming out as being some sort of weird tentacle or something. Yeah. <laughs> that that was where my imagination was going. Was that yeah. I'd, I'd come across something? You know, I was going, is it a snake? That's not a snake. Like it's got smooth skin. So yeah, there was this frog, and the scene where the frog comes out of that pond mm. reminded me of that we just sort of see some eyes, and you kind of go, what what has that many eye stalks? You know. Yeah. And in that case, it really was a monster frog with a huge tongue that yeah. smashed its way through fences and stuff, which is quite good. <laughs> but yeah, the, the monsters were great. Yeah, they were. Um, they were cool, I reckon. Uh, didn't eat as many people as I would like, but I don't think it was that kind of monster film. And it, it was nice, and we'll get into this with the, with the story structure, but it was kind of cool that we have that like diversity of monster that some are... We get a rule, don't we? We get a rule that some are, if you look them in the eye, kind of a bit nice. They're not really trying to cause drama. They're, you know? they're not and monster monsters. They're not monsters. They might still crush them. you in an instant, yeah, but... But they're not deliberately a monster. Not yeah. maliciously. Which also makes sense because, you know, we have dogs that are friendly and then you have dogs that are nasty. So it kind of makes sense that you have... You know, monsters that are kind of monsters, but then also monsters that are, well, they're just a big, large animal, right? Like, yeah, like a big, smiley crab. <laughs> yeah, that's right. 
Um, so, what about yourself? Science fiction or creatively, what have you been up to, young man? I've been playing with some of the uh, masking and special effects features of my video editing software. Mm, okay, Hello. And discovered Hello. that I could... Uh, have myself appear multiple times in the same mm-hmm. film. Oh, wow. And multiple surreys. Yeah, so I've I've written a, a short film. It, it might be one to two minutes long, uh, nice. where I'm, uh, you know, multipliciting, <laughs> berating myself for, for not doing the work I was supposed to do as a clone. Yes. So well, we'll see how that turns out, but that'll be up on, you know, up on the website when it's available, and uh, we'll probably flog it to death if it seems reasonable. <laughs> Multiplicity. Should we do that as a future episode? I th- I think so. You tell me. Let us know on the socials. <laughs> yeah, that's I'm, a good movie, Michael I'm, Keaton. I'm getting a call in now from a listener. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, if only we could get listeners calling in, that'd yeah, be pretty cool. We'd have to be live, sorry. We'd have to be live. Maybe one day on TikTok. We'll and uh, uh, how about uh, you? I know that you just came off filming. Yeah, so I just made... I've talked about it the last couple of episodes. I think that... Um, yeah, Harold the Plumber, uh, it's a comedy drama, uh, had the full three-day shoot, so I had a day last week and then the full weekend. Yeah, uh, big cast actually, I never really realised it. I, I wrote this film, but yeah, kind of suddenly realised there was a lot of cast members, um, being that it was sort of like 11, 11 characters. Um, so yeah, it adds up, adds up definitely when you suddenly realise I've got this and that. But everything went reasonably well, both... Uh, the first day and the second day started a bit funny, as in things just didn't work out according to plan. Um, the first day we had like a, an equipment issue, and then the second day we had a we had a space booked, and then suddenly there was someone else using that space. So never good on film is to have lots of outside noises. But we all recovered. Uh, I knew Saturday the this day two was going to be heavy because we had three locations and actors trickling in throughout the day, but. Yeah, we, we and we did fall behind from the start of the day, so the whole schedule had to kind of go out a bit funny, but we recovered and plotted on in the afternoon and 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 kind of reclaimed. I think we went 20 minutes over time at the end of the day, which I know for a film shoot's not too bad because I've been on other film shoots that go way over. Um, not my film shoot, sorry. Of no, 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 no. <laughs> that time you're on James Cameron's film, yeah, and it, James Cameron's. It went an yeah, extra went, month. Went, Jeez, I oh, know he, he kept us up till midnight just to get the shot. Um, but yeah, the, both the cast and the crew worked really well. It was really great having a couple of people in. Like I had a couple of people in the props department. They did a great job. Like, and they just brought another element to it from the memory my previous film. So just having people kind of say, oh, well, how about this and that and bringing it and we'll dress the set like this. And yeah, so it's an indie film. Um, Probably will be put together over the next month and have some sort of premiere party. And then again, like the memory, go out into the festival circuit for about 12 months. And speaking of festivals, our festival, the the, the Space Space Brain Brain Sci-Fi Film Film Festival, (laughs) yes, 21st of May 2022, it has a home. It has a beautiful home. Where is it, my dear? It is called Fish Trap Theatre, and that's at the Mandra Performing Arts Centre. So it's the premier centre in Mandra. It's a stunning venue, the whole place. Uh, It's a really big theatre, the Fish Trap Theatre, and um, yeah, we've locked that venue in now, haven't it's we, got sorry? stadium seating, yeah. it's got a digital projector, 
It's got uh, lots of a, a big sound system yeah, going on there. It's, it's fully professional. It's a it's a real <laughs> theater experience. It's a real theater. So not only will people come to watch good sci-fi, but now we we will be watching in this sort of state of the art venue, won't we? Yes, and there's there's a a, a bar and sort of Coffee cafe sort of thing, out the yeah. front there, yeah. and uh, and it's on the man, beautiful Mandra foreshore. Why yeah. wouldn't you want to be there? That's right. Dolphins, you know, the river mouth, the estuary shops, uh, you know, the ocean's not far away. And, yeah, this is a, a really beautiful venue. It's something that you and I definitely strive to, to set out to get is something like this. And we've managed to come to an agreement with Manpac, the Mandra Performing Arts Centre. They've come on board to help us and... Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited that it's in this venue. It's it's going to be something special, I think. I think so. And we're planning on doing some uh, workshops, so we'll talk more about that in a future podcast. But if you're somewhere out there in the world, whether it's uh, Los Angeles, whether it's Lith- London... Lithuania. Whether it's uh, Sri Lanka. If you're in Iran, it is hard because I don't think you can pay the fee. No. Like there's a, an embargo on... <laughs> On that, I only discovered that because uh, an Iranian film community contacted and said, "Hey, can you like you know swing us some free stuff?" Mm. And because we can't pay, and so I looked it up and went, "Oh, they can't." Mm. And so I've I've got said back, said, "Well, how many entrants are you talking about?" And and it has to be specifically science fiction because I I was concerned that it had a feeling of a form letter. Mm. And I looked up the, the the group, and they sort of had a lot of drama and a lot of other things. So I wanted to make sure that they knew that the this was the science. Fiction, yeah, I don't mind you know doing a, yeah. a fee waiver for them because you know Iranian filmmakers need to make films too. Yes, but we do want science fiction films because yeah. it's a science fiction film festival. Uh, and so when I reminded them that and I said, "Hey, you know, how many are you thinking of doing?" Because again, I'd hate to do the the waiver and then we get like you know three hundred. <laughs> These films, and you're like, okay, well, that's kind of, like, you know, a bit of a big stack of yeah. films to get through. Um, hopefully, they're in, they'd be in English. But uh, so yeah, if you are in Iran, do get in touch. If you've got a science fiction film, uh, if you're in Lithuania, yes. I assume. If you're in Italy, yeah. Uh, Anywhere in Australia, the world, Australia, <laughs> Mandra, T- Tasmania, um, maybe not. Maybe Tasmania. Tas- maybe. Yeah, I think you've got to get. You've got to get a boat there. Heck, if you're in Antarctica. Yeah, go for it. That'd be Make cool. a film in Antarctica, a sci-fi film. Do it. You've got enough time, got plenty of time. The uh, entry fee is really uh, fair and cheap. It's it's quite cheap. Also, it's in Australian um, dollars, so it's in Australian dollars, so nice it's even and cheaper, easy. <laughs> especially at the moment. The Aussie dollar's trading down, sorry. Uh, but yeah, go for it. Make a film. You've got a few months to get something in, and we look forward to watching it and hopefully having it on the big screen. That'd be great. It would be super. So we should get into breaking down Love and Monsters. On with the show. On with the show. Onwards and upwards. Uh, so brief overview, please. Yeah. So, like I mentioned before, directed by Matthew uh, Michael Matthew. Sorry, not Matthew Michaels. Uh, Brian Duffield wrote it. Matthew Robinson, based on a story by Brian. Um, we have Dylan O'Brien. Lots of Brian's here. Who plays Joel? We have Jessica Henwick playing Amy. Michael Rooker playing Clyde, uh, Arian Greenblatt 
plays Minow and Minow, uh, good old mate, your mate. You're messaging him all the time, sending him all sorts of weird pictures. Danny Boy. Danny Boy, Dan Irwin, um comes on board. This was filmed in Queensland, but it's a complete United States production. Um, Paramount uh, being the company behind that as the, as the key f- founder. Now, the box office side of this is interesting, sorry, for me as a filmmaker. Please do tell. <laughs> the details. It's all in the details. I think Paramount had the plan apparently to do a cinema release, uh, but COVID kind COVID. of being on the, on the wall path as it was last year. They did a deliberate small cinema release, which had a pretty good success rate. And then it just went bang straight onto the streaming services. I think it went onto Apple, uh, Apple TV or something first up as a paid subscription. You're like paying for the movie, renting it, I suppose. Um, and it, it was very successful for a couple of weeks on that. And then it was released to the other streamers uh, like Netflix, where we have access to it. Thank you, Paramount. Thank you, Paramount. So yeah, a bit of a different one. I think a film like this probably does suit that kind of pathway. You know, this is a discussion and and it might be a discussion that we end up having at our Space Brains Festival workshops with filmmakers, but it's definitely one of those things. We're not doing the cinema releases as much anymore. So Well I think I think the cost of running cinemas and cost of cinema releases Mm. is such that usually they're reserved for films they're they're expecting right out of the gate to have big Huge numbers. Big returns, which your, usually your means... Cameron film, you know? Which means they've got to have a, a big-name actors in it and or big-name director, you know? Yeah. And I have to tell the truth, James Cameron's, you know, film, like the next science fiction film by James Cameron, I'm probably going to go see it. Yeah. Because he's got a good track record. Yeah. Uh, likewise, uh, uh, oh, who else? I mean, Spielberg's a similar thing. It's, he's not as active anymore, but certainly back... Uh, during the nineties and things, if if it said Spielberg, I'd go. Well, it's going to be a film to work. You know, but it, be yeah, yeah. But it isn't. I mean, the reason why we do that. I mean, Hollywood has created this, and Hollywood's not alone. This big Sony did it with CDs and stuff. But it's kind of like almost like you blast the audience by saying, "Come watch this film. It's by this guy or this girl, and it's got this huge actor in it. You know, Tom Cruise, whatever." And it's directed by Steven Spielberg. So we're like just hedging all our bets. And then on top of that, it's going to be in every cinema across the country, all in one go, 10 times a day. And so they're kind of like hedging their bets, right? But And it costs them a lot of money. But then if we all do go, oh, Tom Hanks in a Spielberg film, sure, I'm willing to pay 10, 20 bucks for that. Or I'm willing to take my wife on a date to that or my partner or whatever. And then the guy at work has gone, oh, I wouldn't saw that movie and it's really funny and everyone, or oh, it's really scary or whatever. And we're all like going to it. The return is worth it. But then when you talk about like a smaller film or an independent film and you go, well, the cost of that, like even take, you know, Occupation, uh, Luke Sparks film, it's like the cost of getting it into the cinemas and getting the bums on seats to make it worth it is really hard. Like it's very expensive. Yeah. So you've got to then look at, well, what are some other options? And I think, I mean, COVID threw a spanner in so many different industries. Film is no different. And they are then looking at the same times the streamers like Netflix doing so well that it's like, well, okay, we can make our money back. Again, we've talked about this here previously, but Grant Spatore talked about that, didn't he? Like $15 million film. So no way what we're talking about budgets, a decent budget, but nothing like a Spielberg budget no. right, or James Cameron budget. 
But they planned to do a cinema release for I Am Robot. And they did the Sundance Festival and, and I think some other festival did very well at Sundance. Lots of critics saying, this is a great film. This is going to do well. And Netflix, buyers, producers, whatever they are called, have come along and said, well, so how much did you expect to do at the cinemas? Oh, well, $15 million budget. We would want to get our $15 million back. And Netflix has said, sure. Yeah. We'll take it for 15 but you're not allowed to put it in the cinemas. And the producers are like, you're just going to give us our money for the film. Sure, do it, sold. Amazing. Everyone's happy. <laughs> so I think a film like this probably does sort of fit into something like that, don't you reckon? I Am Robot. Yeah, it does. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm not I Am Robot. I Am Mother. <laughs> it doesn't really have any big names that they can tout. Like it's not yep. advertised with, you know, directed Huge by or even produced or written by or anything like that sort of thing. Uh, it has excellent, you know, production quality and so forth. It's a, it's a top-notch film, mm. but with the cost and effort of, you know, distribution. Thousands of cinemas. If Netflix, Apple TV, Amazon come along and says, yeah, you're, I mean, yeah, Netflix has got, what, uh, 100 million, couple on 200 million people subscribed or something, 300 million, some ridiculous. Multiply that by everyone paying at least $10 a month. Mm. You're looking at multi-billion dollars a month revenue. Yeah. If they just sort of say, oh, you have your $15 million, I don't know what the budget of this one was, probably about $20 million or so, somewhere in that region. Yeah, we'll give you $60 million. That's triple your money. Yeah. And $60 million is a drop in the bike. That's only, they only need to get $6 million people watching it in one month. Yeah. And it's paid back. It's paid back. Yeah. And they would have gotten that. Yeah. Easy. Yep. In fact, I've watched it a couple of times now. Yeah. So there you go. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting way and it's definitely probably the future for a lot of, especially films in this, that middle tier bit, you know? Like the smaller indie films might have a small niche market that mm. are willing to go out and pay for it at the cinema. Well, and I think also and particularly... Likewise, your Spielberg viewers might pay for it, but then the in-between market, right? The in-between market's the bit that's... Well, particularly here in Australia... You know, in the States, there's a whole lot more cinemas. That's right. And this level of film does get some play. But yeah. in Australia, here in Mandra, we have one mm. cinema. Well, even Perth, you know, like, so a state so of we, two million got, people, you've got yes, like four or five cinemas. 100,000 people here in Perth, uh, in Mandra, and we've got one cinema. Yeah. Uh, there's another one in Rockingham. Mm. Uh, but then you go up to Perth, and there's, there's only a handful of cinemas yeah. up there, which means the... The bets or the odds on on any film doing well enough, it's sort of we get the big names. Yeah, we get all of the blockbusters like um, Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. <laughs> Tom Cruise doing anything? Uh, yeah, it's another Tom Cruise movie. <laughs> yeah, we we got all the Harry Potters and the Star yeah. Warses and the James Bonds and the you know anything that's just like I said, it's guaranteed to make a return. We get all of that stuff. Yeah. We do get some of the small things here and there because they got to fill the gaps. But for the most part, if it's not from Pixar, Disney, or um, you know, whoever, then we don't tend to get it much in Australian cinemas. Yeah, it's a shame. So let's let's talk about this plot here. So yeah, you were saying Hero's Journey. That's what I think. I was looking at it's just it really fit that. Uh, we're saying like for example, Star Wars with Luke Skywalker. Yeah. You could you could almost just overlay these two films. You could and you Neo get Neo in the Matrix. Yeah, and you get the same plot points happening at yep. similar times. It, it's a really nice round of film. This, well, it's not, it's not full of surprises. Yeah, you know? no. so it's it's not a, and that's not what the movie's about. Some movies are about we're going to upend your expectations a that's bit, right. or we or we're going to 
hold on to this tension point an extra five minutes longer than you're expecting. That's right. Because we want to make you unsettled. Yeah. Yeah. I think what this film, I agree with you in that. First of all, say, yeah, there's some sort of hero's journey going on here. Uh, Joel goes on a journey to find his girlfriend or his ex, uh, thinking that she's going to solve his current problems. But realistically, he already is the person that can solve his problems. He yes. just doesn't know it. It's the same with Neo. It's the same with Luke Skywalker. They already have the answer within themselves. They don't really need to look outside themselves, although, Joel, although they want to. Joel yeah, failed in this one because Luke gets the force and Neo is the one. <laughs> but what does Luke... Luke, I mean, Joel have. Joel has... <laughs> well, Joel, no, but Joel does because re- at the start he's, um, he's frozen. In fear. Frozen in fear. as he goes along, he's like, no, there's no problems. He's over the fear. And he's also let go of Amy that then he can actually, like, focus on his own life now. Yeah. yeah. So I think so. I think so. Neo's the same, right? Like, Neo is told he's the one and he doesn't really know what that means. And then he's told that he only can be the one if he believes he is the one and he's not the one. Mm. But then that means that he... He, and so in knowing that he's not the one, he then becomes the one. <laughs> Naturally. We're not going to go back but to do, the don't we, But don't we all end up like that? Yeah, we do. We do, really. I mean, I'm the so no- that is the hero. As long as we're not the number two. <laughs> um, I, I, I suppose the other thing is, so like you just said, the narrative is nothing to be totally like surprised. It's still fun and adventurous. Um, I think what this film worked off was... Uh, the style, right? Like the style is cool. The style is, is you feel, I felt, sophisticated. I felt comfortable, fun. amused, satisfied, mm. and interested and entertained by this yeah. film. Yeah. Uh, and that's, I'm pretty sure that's what I was aiming for. Yeah. It wasn't trying to uh, blow my mind or no. make me feel unsettled or make me really um, uh, introspective about my relationships. Yeah, no. It was no. about, it was about finding a bit of, uh, a bit of Joel in us yeah. and seeing how... <laughs> our own inner Joel. How we can all, you know, enjoy our lives a bit more, I think. It's I good. I think so, yeah. So, to me, the winning factor of this film is, like, the special effects of the creatures, the style of those monsters is really fun and tongue-in-cheek, and that combines with also, like, the way that main character is, you know, and the, the some of the focal points in this film... Uh, that he focuses on in the, those little plot points. Like we were saying with the dog holding the dogs. It's like the dog's going to give him away to this weird killer creature. Um, you know, the, the also like even the fact that he's kind of like, he's so, he, he can't survive out there on his own in this really dangerous world. And yet then he's just going to go off and plod through it all on his own. Like it's a bit kind of cray cray, but there's, it's a bit tongue in cheek in that way. Um, and I really liked that. And the film sets that, barrier or that not barrier sorry that's not the right word it sets that tone from the start with this awesome sort of drawings and yes. him telling us of so, like where the world is so it's and it's almost done like those um like a storyboard for a film or a graphic uh novel you know yeah um, so and, it's we're, done we're, and we're being cool introduced way. to a a bit of a a plot point or a, an externalization of joel which is his his um drawing diary drawing ability yeah he, and, he draws all of his diary, and, and that's a clever thing as well because yeah. he could have written his diary. Yes, but this is a visual medium. Yeah, and so seeing cool. just writing on a page is kind of boring. But these kind of fun little cartoony things on the page, you can see the pictures. You don't have to be able to read it. Mm. It's really good. 
But it doesn't like that tone at the very start of him giving us the backstory of, you know, humans blowing up the asteroid and the radiation. Like he says, um, you know, the animals mutated and turned on their owners. And uh, I can't remember. It's is it Kevin and the goldfish? Like the goldfish ate Kevin or something? Yeah, don't be like, don't be like Kevin. Like, don't, don't be like Kevin. And then and then he's also like, oh, and. You know, normally when you kill a roach, you, you just need some force against a, you know, you need the force to be larger than the roach. And so that started off with a shoe. And then, and, and they're showing us this in a picture. And then, and then it became a shotgun. And then it became a tank. And then, well, sometimes even a tank's not strong enough. Yeah. Especially if you're like Bob, who gets out of a tank, you know. Yeah. And it's like, so the joke is maybe the tank was okay, but humans are a bit stupid, right? So that tongue in cheek of it is quite cool. Um, so we do. We get this story that the um, this whole fallout of a, of this asteroid and blowing it up, causing cold blooded animals to mutate into large monsters, and that they kind of the army and the monsters took each other out, and ninety five percent of humanity was wiped out. That's a, that sounds like a lot, mm. but it still leaves us with if we're talking about an eight billion dollar eight billion eight billion people eight billion people on the planet, five percent is what. Is that that's still quite a bit? Eight billion would be ten percent would be like eight hundred million. Mm. Eighty million would be one percent times five. So this still is the thing, right? I never four hundred million. Still four hundred million, half a million. You know, half a billion people or something yeah. like it's, it's. I never a, thought this as a kid. I don't. Know, did you ever have this thought with the apocalypse films? Like you kind of thought like everyone is wiped out, but we there is so many of us we're kind of like cockroaches if it was something like this or it is pretty much the aliens, case. Like, i thought about this i think where i had this realization was maybe independence day and then wiping everything out and then there's still and then me thinking yeah like it would be like it's like they've come to planet earth it would be really hard to get rid of the human race you could get rid of a lot you easily could, you could you could but do 95 percent, and it's like rabbits yeah. yeah, here in Australia, we have a problem with rabbits. Intr- yeah. Introduced species, big yeah. problem. And you see the sort of plague proportions, easy to get rid of. You know, you can literally put down fences and round them up and then put Boys them in trucks them. and drive them away. Yeah. But you always end up with some population that yeah. just stays there. You Somewhere. can't you can't yeah. get rid of it. Two of them disappear down a hole somewhere. No, yeah. you, do, you miss them. And then six months later, you've got a new population. Yes, and, and you know, uh, that movie Signs kind of played off the idea of, like, the alien coming to the farmhouse and we we, we should do Signs one day on Space Brands. But it's like, so, like, aliens are on each, every house as, like, a soldier or whatever to annihilate that house. And it's like, so, so yeah, you could do a system like that, but the chances are someone's going to fail on that system along the way, right? Like There's, there's too many opportunities too of failing. <laughs> and even just hiding, like, hiding. So, like you said, down the hole. So it is a bit of an art. So from there we go. So that's a little divergent. Seven years later, Joel is living in uh, one of the many bunkers. He's in number 7045, sorry. Naturally. And uh, underground called Colonies, where all the survivors have kind of gone. Uh, in his bunker, they're all kind of partnered up, um, romantically, that is, and except for him. Except for Joel. He's got a cow, a broken robot, and a ham radio. Karen and Ray... His little kind of roommates are in the honeymoon phase, so they're kind of making love off camera uh, in very close quarters, and he's constantly sleeping. and without without closing concern for him. <laughs> closing the, I think closing the door meant like a curtain. Yes, right? they like got a curtain, that. but they just left it open. You should, you've left your door open. We know. 
We know. <laughs> um, so Joel is only one because he loves Amy, his ex. Oh, he's got, it, it, as I shouldn't say ex really, should I? Because he doesn't think of her as an ex. No, well, they never broke up. And no. we do get a flashback. We do. But we'll come to that he, in a moment. He, and yeah, Joel is there and he's explaining uh, he's cooking the minestrone. Uh, he's uh, looking after the cow who really li- he likes him. And he sort of lies about getting good at target practice. So I was just going to say, so remember we talk about is that the six things that could um, that need fixing. Six things that need fixing for yes. our main character. So he's on his own. Oh, dear. He can't shoot a target no. to save his life. He literally can't. He actually goes, oh, I'm good at target practice, and he can't. He's... Kind of talking to a dead robot and yeah. a cow. He he wants to meet a robot, but he can't because he reckons they're all gone. Yeah. Um, and then he freezes in situations. Yes. Doesn't, no matter how like he's about to die and he's going to freeze. And so he doesn't have the... Or, he feels he doesn't have the respect of his uh, co-colony. So he doesn't colony. have the respect of his people, yeah. Yep. And one more thing is... And he's just the cook. Right, like he, yeah, he, he doesn't he have a, a, a valuable, what, a seemingly valuable position. Yeah. yeah, so that's probably the six. There you go. So when a giant ant, so he's got to fix those things. Does he fix those things by the end of the story? When a giant ant breaches the colony and it kills one of the key men in the group, Connor. I did think, hey Joel, now it's time to move. <laughs> <laughs> too soon, move. too soon, too soon, Joel, too soon. Um, killing Connor, Joel just survives as another one saves him. Um, so he froze under there. And there's a great line there because he kind of is like, um, did I shoot it? No. What, what do you think? What do you think? Yeah. <laughs> um, so then he decides he's going to set off on a quest to reunite with Amy so he doesn't end up alone. Yeah. What's well, also, yeah. let me just say a little film thing there. What's really cool is the ant. It's a giant ant monster thing. You kind of don't see it. It's all a shadow. It's a creature. It's very alien-like, isn't it? Mm. That, as in alien, what we talked about, that they never really showed alien, but it was there in the shadow. And, you know, there's this big thing kind of looming over him, but you're not getting the camera shot of it. No, and you can also see that you, you can't assume that it's just a big ant because yeah. it's, we do see its head and face, which is all freaky. Yeah. So you kind of wonder, well, what else is wrong? And you don't yeah. know because yeah. you don't see it. Mm. So that's kind of really cool. I just wanted to say it's like it's a really cool thing. Um, so he's going to set off to get to Amy. Everyone tells him not to do it. Uh, in fact, there's like kind of a moment there saying, "Are you really going to? Are you really going to do it?" <laughs> they really came across like parents, didn't they? Like he's actually going to go through with it. Yeah, it and and it was a moment of him sitting there going, "Yeah, no, yeah, no," and he goes, "No, I'm doing." It. He packs his bags. Yeah. He starts going. Out. Everyone rallies around to try and. Ask him to not go, and again they're doing this in a loving way, which which was nice because they they weren't trying to imprison him there or hold him back, but they no. were expressing we think you're going to die if you go there, so we don't want you to die. Mm. But he says, "No, I really I have to go." So they give him a map, <laughs> which is of questionable value uh, initially, uh, and finally, you know, he he goes yes. and heads out. He does. Um, Everyone says goodbye. And he goes up out into the Queensland outback, <laughs> which is beautiful. So if you're not from Australia, or even if you haven't seen Queensland, mm. yeah, check out the scenery there. That's that's up there, Queensland near uh, Rockhampton and, and 
that sort of area. Yeah, it's lovely. It's it's quite beautiful. It is, and but it looks very alien to most people. I yeah, it does. Thing. It's like I've, I looked at it when I first saw it. It came out. I thought, where well, that's a that's I know now they've got a, eucalyptus trees in California. They sort of got a bit of an experiment out of control. But I remember watching it going, is that no? That just must be like California. Maybe you know, sort of swampy in places. Maybe it's near Florida mm. or something along those lines. But then. Uh, a couple scenes in as he's traveling along, there's one shot where I can see a particular plant and I go, nope, that is Australia. You don't get that plant in that context anywhere else in the world. I don't know the name of the plant. I just recognize it by sight. So that we do have a flashback. Amy and him are like having a moment um, and he's drawing her and she gives him those colored pencils that he has kind of using now. And just when they're kind of, you know, about to get a bit amorous, uh, this sort of like large creature is blowing up a town, their town, you presume, and the army are blowing it up too. Um, So they kind of rush rush off to that. Um, He also does explain in this moment and in the present that he's been drawing the monsters into the book. Like uh, to us, to us, the, to the audience. And that picture he drew of her harkens back to Napoleon Dynamite. Because <laughs> it's a goofy... It's a it's an awful... It's a poor picture. Picture. But the pictures he's drawing now of the monsters are actually really quite good. They They're are, very stylized. Yeah. Yeah. They're shaded and colored. It's very good. Um, and then, yeah, with the flashback, he's also having the evacuation of Fairfield. And it's... Um, yeah, he's he's leaving. He wants to get out, and um, Amy says to him, "Come find me." Come know? find and, me. And and his parents are saying, "Go get, go get, go get your parents. Get out of here." You know, um, but she asks him to come find him. So I suppose it's funny, isn't it? Like looking back on that, on uh, when I looked at this sort of a second time. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe it's on Amy, you know. I mean, she should have just said, no, see you later, Joel. It's the end of the world. Don't don't come no, find me. I think at the time she did want him. No, come no, on. no, I think she And then mum hands him the chandelier. She does. Which uh, even my kids laughed at because they're yeah. going, what is he going to do with this? Why does she care about the I chandelier? Know, but the chandelier is weird, isn't it? It's, it's it's one of those things, it's sort of this panicky moment. Someone hands you something <laughs> and you just hold on to it. Yeah. And we, we see it. It's hanging above his bed in the bunker. But We do. Yeah, I, I could well imagine... Doing something crazy like you just go, we've got to get out of here. And you just sort of grab the nearest thing, you know, the slow cooker, hand it over, take this, take this. let's go. We might need this. And you're like, what the hell am I going to do with a slow cooker? I'm crying out loud. I yeah. I so, suppose the problem is you never know what the end of the world's going to really be like, do you? You know? Yes. Yeah, well, you never know. And, and Joel is heading out on the end of the earth and he heads on down into a little town where uh, he's sort of goes past some monster eggs and he's he's looking around saying he hasn't been the killed yet. The yeah, he, he checks useless. the map and it's just like... Uh, don't go here, don't go don't here. Don't go here, don't go... It's, it's kind of like almost like a kid's map, you know. Yeah. So he puts that back away. But uh, we get this nice scene where there's a... Bloop, 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 yep. And up pop these eyes out of this pond and then a big frog comes out. Yeah. And he gets attacked by this gigantic frog, mm. uh, spits a tongue at him... And uh, it captures him, captures him, and, and dragging him towards the dragging him, in, and just as we think there's it's no hope for him, <laughs> in comes running a dog, yeah. uh, a blue, a, a kelpie, sorry, yeah, uh, which was another hint. We went, yeah, this is definitely Australia. They got Australia, a, yeah. they got a trained kelpie. They got red dog. 
Yeah, red dog. And <laughs> Kelby bites the tongue and the frog lets go and they they yeah. run off and dog has a bus that he goes onto and he, Joel jumps on the bus and the dog closes the door because it's a clever dog. Yeah. And we have a little interlude here after Joel's first monster encounter mm-hmm. where he performed similarly to what he did in the bunker. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. it was... Maybe he did a little bit better in that he didn't freeze for too long, mm-hmm. but he still had to get rescued. Yeah. And so we can see that, yeah, even though he's taken this brave step of going out, he has not yet become the hero he needs to be. No. And the dog is called Bark, and he kind of learns this from him, and he's very obsessed over this red dress. Boy. His name's, dog's name's Boy. Boy. Yes. Yeah, Boy. Sorry, Boy. Um, Not Bark. Because <laughs> um, that is what he does. That's what he does. Yeah, boy, 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 and um, he's yeah. He it's interesting because he's kind of like attracted to the red color, and he's got a red dress, and and it seems like the van he's in, he was there with an owner, but she's no longer there. Yeah, we don't know what's happened to her, but no. you you got to assume that nothing good yes. happened. And then anyway, so Joel sets off on his journey, and boy wants to come along with him follow along with him with his red dress. With his red dress. <laughs> and then we learn pretty quick, which is nice because Joel's just kind of a little bit stupid or doesn't know much about the, like the the dog warns him about things like dangerous berries. Yeah, berries don't, don't eat these like, berries. And, rrr, you know. So he writes in his book, dog, yeah, boy says yeah, no. Boy says no. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, and Joel's kind of wandering along from this experience with boy and he falls, he suddenly falls into a hole and there's these worm monsters called sand gobblers. Um, yeah. And he, they're kind of coming out of the, like those, what are those old, like... Uh, like a whack-a-mole whack, or something? Yeah, whack-a-mole or even like those things out of cans, you know, the old thing, yeah. you open a can and this kind of thing comes flying out of a can. Um, but obviously a bit more dangerous. And uh, when it looks all doom and gloom, suddenly he's helped out by a couple of people from up top. And they're Clyde and Manau. They rescue him, basically. They pull him up just to, just as he's about to get bitten by one of those sand gobblers. And I think Clyde cuts it in half or something With like a that. samurai sword. Because <laughs> everyone in every apocalypse film has to have, have a, a samurai, samurai sword. Someone has to have it. I've... Clyde is no... Um, you know, he, he doesn't have to be distanced from it because he's from The Walking Dead many, many moons ago. Merle. Uh, Merle. <laughs> Um, different type of character because here he's playing quite a helpful fella. Yeah. Um, they are heading north into the mountains where there's a, a village being set up or there's one set up. There's a lot less monsters due to the colder weather and higher up the mountains. It makes or something sense. Like that. Yeah. Um, and they're heading up that way and Joel could come with them. Um, so Joel kind of says, well, you know, I'm going this way to find Amy and and they go well. We could. I think Joel says, "Oh, I can. I can kind of come with you, but it's a good thing, isn't it?" You well, know, so. you're, it's the other way around. So Clyde says, "Oh, well, we we could go west. But we don't have to turn north just yet." Yeah. So they they do. They head a little bit west. Yeah. And he learns a lot here. They're, they're walking along, and he's like, you know, if you get poisoned, eat this stuff. Yeah. And um, the minnows listing off all the different names of monsters because something's. Uh, chasing him, got his scent. That's right. And so, yeah. It could be a bone crusher or a bone snapper or a leg breaker or a <laughs> limb chewer. or a, And she's just yeah rattling off every monster that seems to just be about destroying people. There's a great scene, isn't there? Like they're on 
they're on sort of like the top of the hill looking down on a devastated old country town and uh, again, it's very evident if you're Australian that we're in Australia, but I can understand also that's very foreign to most of the world. Um, but he's Clyde, good old Clyde's kind of looking and Manau starts teaching him a bit about target practice and stuff, but you can kind of see that in the distance, like trees are toppling over. Yeah. <laughs> and so something is migrating towards them. And this is what he's talking about, that this thing's got yeah, your scent. Big, big monster thing. And as Minnow is like saying, yeah, my dad was a great archer. He taught me everything I knew. And Joel says, well, why why doesn't he teach me then? And so I'm not her father. Yeah. Which reminded me of the Peter Sellers joke in The Pink Panther, mm. where he, for those of you who have not seen the film, uh, Inspector Clouseau comes into a hotel and there's a dog sitting, stand, you know, sitting in the foyer. And he says to the owner, oh, does your dog bite? He says, does your dog bite? And the owner says, no. So he reaches down to pat the dog and gets bitten. Yeah. And Jasmine says, you said your dog does not bite. That is not my dog. <laughs> I don't, it, it amuses me. It is. I think, I think maybe because it's, it was one of my dad's favorite jokes. I mean, <laughs> it still is. He's still around. It sounded like I was talking past tense about him. He did. He did. I'm sure he's got other favorite jokes is what I'm getting at now. So other, unlike Manau, you still have your father. Yes. Um, <laughs> but Clyde is not Manau's father. They have this story of Clyde has lost his kids, I think, and Manau has lost her father. Something yes. Like that. But they're together, so they're together now helping each other. Um, she teaches him how to practice. Targeting kind of gets a bit better. They're yep. teaching him about the ways of the world. But they get to that pointy end where, well, we're going to go north mm. or to the mountains. You're going to go west. You could come, or you could stay. Yeah, and and there is this is the classic. He's got to choose the next act, yeah. basically. So the act three is coming up, and he's he's got the option here to or not have act a three, yeah, not act have three. a different story, yeah, or continue on his own adventure. Yeah. And it, interestingly enough, I think it could have worked either way. But that's a, as I was saying at the start, this isn't the sort of movie that is going to turn you on your expectations. Mm. Because had he gone, you know what, I am going to the mountains. But but the thing is, if he'd chosen that, that, that is the safer option. And yeah. it's not his quest, right? Yes, like his in, quest in theory, was to get to Amy. but you could still have quite a movie about oh, that. Could. Like you could he, still have a story. he could still then, for example, have to rescue Clyde and Minnow. Yeah. Like, yeah. They could get in trouble, and then he's got to rescue them and save the town up in the mountains. You could have had that, but that really would have thrown you off course yeah. because you would be thinking no he's going for Amy he's yeah. going for Amy and he's got to no but the thing is he's got to prove that he can kind of like get to Amy yeah, so, save Amy right? and, like, and that's why the expectation would be that he, that he does go to Amy and yeah. that is what the movie delivers yeah. which is nice they've just trained him up on the ways of the world that's all yeah they're, they're the Obi-Wan Kenobi yeah, story they are and and that's great And but that's what I mean if, if he goes with them he's kind of then under the protection of Obi-Wan Kenobi so he's mm. it's not it's it's too safe again he's got to go off on his own maybe Clyde should turn around and says you can strike me down but I will only be more powerful than you could ever imagine <laughs> whereas uh, Boy is kind of like R2-D2 yes you know, like <laughs> he's not really going to save him he might even get him in trouble, but he's there to help him, you know. But they're they're sort of going on a journey together. Yeah. So yeah, he he parts ways with them and goes off into the wilderness, which 
which is where he comes across that duck paddle boat. Yeah, it's nice. It's, so this is this is, this cool is like the first test of his new skills and bravery. Again, paper bark trees. Paper, paper bark trees. Bark trees. I'm not sure actually if paper bark trees elsewhere in the world, but those ones are very. The Australian swamp paper bark yes. tree. <laughs> they they do like the bit of the uh, wet ground. Yeah, they do. And yeah, it's, uh, and I really like this scene because he comes up, uh, boy runs and hides under this paddle duck. Yeah. And the duck is it's a little bit ominous. Yes. Because it's like, it. Uh, no, the camera it pays a bit of attention well, to it, and it? and it's creepy because it's kind of cutesy, yeah. but it's in this swampy. Yeah. You know, it, maybe it used to be an old camp sort of site with rentals. But yeah, there's a noise and Joel stops there and he looks up at this weird duck and you're expecting the duck to do something, but it doesn't. No. Instead, the little feet or whatever stick up out of the ground around him and shiver. And this, I don't know, wood louse centipede thing curls over him and there's, there's a bit of a fight and he freezes. Yeah, well, it's and a perfect opportunity, right? Dog, right? dog saves him a little bit there and so he gets knocked aside and... That's where he, he has remembers his parents getting squished by the bug. He does. And he just stood there frozen. Uh, and he overcomes his freeze and shoots at this monster. And uh, they manage to they kill it? I yes. Think so, he yeah, shoots it yeah, in the head or something. Yeah, and, yeah you know, it does. Because it, yeah, it does. Piles yeah, in front of him. Yeah, yeah piles yeah. up in front of him. So that was like his first test. Okay, yep. Now we can see he has grown and he has become like. But he's still got a ways to go before he meets Amy. Mm. Uh, and he continues on uh, and is quickly confronted then by the Queen Sand Gobbler. As the. Is that happening on this one or is this after Mavis? No, no, that's, that's after, after Mavis. So yeah. he meets Mavis here. Yeah. He has this nighttime thing with Mavis uh, and he gets some battery power for and contacts Amy. Amy, and yeah. Amy says something along the lines of, oh, something's changed. There's people here and it cuts out. Yeah. And there's just a couple of minutes left of Mavis. Um, something as a nice little touch is like those jellyfish in the sky. Yeah, which yeah. again gives you that sense that not all the monsters are bad guys. No, that's right. It's like some are just kind of harmless things that happen. Yeah. And Mavis sent, and I love this little homage to 2001 mm. with the um, Stand By Me, but it's Stand By Me, not stand by me, yeah. I'm Going Crazy. Yeah. Sort of dwindling off and then it just cuts out. Well, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Because in the next scene as well, after the sand gobbler, it's Stand By Me with the leeches. Oh, yes, it is. You know, it like is the... It's the two moments. That's what I thought. It's like the, you've got the Stand By Me song. Yeah. And then you've got the Stand By Me leeches story. Yeah. Like, to me, it was like a direct... Because the way he even does it, you know, like he comes out of the water. But we're jumping ahead a little bit. So um, he has this... Major moment, doesn't he? Where he's attacked by this queen sand goblet. It's quite scary. It's quite aggressive. It's yeah, popping and, out of things. And this one, he acts the whole time. He doesn't freeze yeah, at all. No. So he he runs from it because obviously that's what you got to do. It's crazy not to. Yeah. And he hides and holds the you dog's snout. Quiet. Yeah. But then dog sort of Wants just can't help dress. himself. Goes and grabs a red dress, and so he, he jumps to. up and goes, "Oh my god, okay, fine." And he takes action immediately. Yes. And pulls the grenade out and he starts counting and he drops it on the ground and, you know, a bit of comedy there and yeah. throws it in and we get the leap away as the explosion, leaping away from explosion. Like, you know he has become the hero he needs to be. Yeah. Which means he's got one last test 
the test of the the ultimate. He's going to face Darth Vader one time yes. to become a Jedi. But that's still to come. So he swims across this pond. He's covered in these leeches, like Stand By Me. It's, a, it's an identical kind of scene. Um, and in, and instead of it being successful, he then like. I guess because this world, monsters, he totally hallucinates and passes out. He gets poisoned. He manages to eat a bit of that fern that he yeah, was told. you gotta, you got to eat this thing, he does, which is nice. And he passes out and he wakes up and he, he sees Amy. He sees Amy. And he gives her a big old pash and then he falls unconscious. Yeah. To then wake up in a bed in a in a colony. Yeah, with elderly bunker. people. Elderly people and... No, Amy. Yeah, well, I mean... Who did I just pash? Yeah, <laughs> Amy comes in, helps up and says, oh, yeah, you were hallucinating pretty badly out there. Oh, dude, but we we had a moment. No, that was, that was Keith or whatever his name was. <laughs> as an Australian actor as well. Yeah, from um, Ace Ventura. He's also in Mad Max. Yes, Mad Max. But I remember yes. Ace Ventura. Oh, okay. I remember Mad Max, but you know, <laughs> each to each their own. Yes. And, uh, yeah, so here he is. He finds himself in Amy's colony. There's all old people. He's noticing that this, uh, you know, Amy is very being kept very busy looking after all the old people, old yeah. people in this colony, which seems to be like an old resort or something. Mm. And she, yeah. And she, she confesses that, you know, they're re- really glad to see him and stuff, but She's become a completely different person in the seven years. Yes, I, mean, I lost. Totally someone. changed herself in seven years. I can imagine. Yeah, no, and that makes a lot of sense. And yeah. she she lost someone last year, mm. so you know she's not too hot on jumping into a, a relationship. But you know what? She comes and introduces him. There's, <laughs> there's there's the ship, and yeah. he sees the ship, and introduces him to um, good old Dan. Oh, well, the other two first. And he's, yes. oh, is that a... And he's kind of relaxed by this because these two yeah. are not romantic uh, rivals of his. Yeah. Yeah, one's got an arm cannon. He says, yeah, I made it myself. And then out comes Dan, Australian accent, cutting through everyone else. He goes, oh, hi, mate. How you going? You know, from the Royal Australian Navy. Retired, of course. <laughs> and everyone keeps telling him, he brews his own beer. So why'd you leave your colony? You steal food. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone keeps accusing him of being a, a food thief. Yeah. The irony being, of course, and that's exactly what Dan Ewing's character is. Yeah. Captain, the ship captain. Uh, and they, yeah, they they reveal they're going to have this journey. They're going to take them away. They can make it on the ocean, mm. which I, I don't know, that boat is not big enough for them, but maybe the plan is there other boats. Mm. And Joel says, no, you can do it on land. You can, you can make land. He says, in one of those moments where it sounds like he's being really nice, but you can tell that he's kind of trying to undermine Joel. He says, well, yeah, sure. I'm all for it, mate. You got a plan? I'll back you. Hmm. And Joel goes, no, well, well, no, I don't have a plan. Yeah. Oh, sorry, mate. I didn't want to put you on the spot there like that. But, you know, <laughs> till then, we, we can go out on the border. You we know? can go on my plan. Yeah. And it's, and it's just kind of a, you know, it's, it's a bit of an underhanded tactic of, of cutting him down a bit. And so they're going to have a party. And of course, again, it's revealed that, you know, come out and cook the barbecue, look like a barbecue guy. He says, no, I've got to use the radio. So he goes back and talks to his people and says, I made it. And they're so happy. But they reveal at his own colony that they've had another couple of breaches mm. and everything's kind of fallen to shit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, they, they sound a bit rattled. 
and they miss him. Yeah. And he, he misses them and he pulls out his map and he sees the other side of it. And it's got all their little well-wishing messages. We love you. Remember family that all accounts and yeah. and all these sorts of things. And he goes, oh, yeah, I should I should go back. I've got no place here. Yeah. I should go back there. Much better place. And in walks one of the oldies, drops down a, a bowl of berries and a beer. He says, yeah, there's Captain Bruce's own beer. He gets reminded of that. It's strange that that's sort of like a, a cool thing. I guess maybe in the apocalypse it is. Yeah. Nowadays, it's kind of a kind of a nerdy thing to do these days, but in the apocalypse, I guess it's probably kind of cool. I think so. I might have a place in the apocalypse. Then. You would. That's your job. Yes, great. <laughs> and yeah, he's left there with the berries and the beer, and he he picks up the berry, and in case we hadn't figured it out yet, he flips through his book and compares it to the berries that yeah. Boy says no, but I don't know. I sort of that sort of felt like I was being hit over the head with a bit, but maybe he was still wondering if he hallucinated or not. Was just to really confirm that yeah, that's the berries his... are bad, and so he he runs out there to to go. Hey, Amy, we can't do this, and everyone's like super drunk. But you got to wonder how they could have gotten so drunk because they weren't when he left. And yeah, they start falling over left and right, and Amy yeah. is like cuckoo bananas. Yeah, and then Captain just knocks him out, bonk, uh, where he wakes up. Yeah, they all wake up on the beach, tied up. And now, good old Dan Cap is uh, not happy chap, groom, you know, he's a killer on the barbecue, mate. Oh, and, yeah, mate. And uh, there's the beer. No, it's a plan. They're going to steal all their supplies. And uh, they, he reveals that their yacht is towed by a huge crab monster that he... Ten tons of sheer fury. <laughs> he controls with an electrified chain. And he's going to set the crab on to feed on the colonists. Uh, which he does, you know, as they're stealing their supplies. So this crab comes in freaking angry, isn't it? Yeah, and, and Joel says, I, I can just whip my way free. And Amy, of course, has already broken her bonds because <laughs> we do have to remember Joel has gained a bit of bravery and knowledge, but he's he's still a bit, of a, mil- bit of a milk toast, yeah. I think the term is. And she busts him free and, oh, okay. But then she turns around and says, oh, I guess I can take care of these three Um yeah, well, how did she she says it the way the way she says it's really cool because it gives you something to you know I'll take care of these three and you still think oh he's been you know taken care of like he was back at his old colony and he says after all it's not like I've, I could cross seven days uh, on the surface yeah and that's when he goes oh and the crab comes over to him and and she kind of indicates the crab and runs off and you, and you go okay no she wasn't she, you know she was actually giving him the harder job because clearly he could handle it. Mm. And again, this is this is where you see it is his test. Yes. This is the final boss. Uh, and he goes, oh, okay, well, I guess I've got to do something as opposed to what he would have done previously, which is just freak out. Yeah. And he goes, he, he grabs the, the skewer off the rotisserie yep. and the crab charges him and he like lodges it in its shell and flips it over him. And it goes on its back, which gives him a bit of a reprieve. Yeah. And then Amy's like fighting with Bomb Girl who shoots the radar. And then uh, there's, there's, um, it's a big action bit sequence. Bit of a fight scene fight here scene. anyway. And uh, it, it ends up then that Amy knocks out the dude with a gun. And then, then the rock grenade launcher person shoots at Joel, but gets an arm knocked aside and hits the crab, knocking again, stunning it a bit out of action. 
And Joel has then the opportunity to kill the crab, mm. but he realizes, looking into its eyes, that it's actually one of these monsters that's not not bad, naturally it, hostile. Yeah, it's just being electrocuted constantly. Yeah, yeah, and so he shoots the electrified chain, freeing the crab. And there's that moment that you're like, well, the crab could now just wipe you all out. Could still do it. Um, and it doesn't. It leaves Joel and Han, and instead heads to kill. Cap and the crew, which have kind of like escaped just willingly back yeah. to the boat. They're on the ship, and, yeah. and Captain and says, Oh, I guess we're all going to die now. Yeah. <laughs> which is a, just a nice, calm way of just sort of saying yeah. it. I, I thought it was kind of just that realization there's no panic or anything. Oh, well, we're all going to die I, now. I also like how that whole thing was kind of shot because you had Joel, you, we all knew, well, they're in a lot of trouble, but it's then just shot more from a bit of a distance that this crab goes up and. You see the whole yacht roll over and start sinking, and yeah. And it, it was—you're not left to any doubt no. whether they get it. They get eaten. They just chucked in the mouth, the, yeah. the crab's mouth. Yeah. Uh, Joel recommends Amy and her colony head north, and they do share a romantic goodbye kiss. And then this is where Amy promises that she will find him one day. Yes. But he's not as interested in that. No. He's off to he's got important head back things. to his... Uh, yeah, now his mission now is like, well, I know now I'm the one. Yes. <laughs> I can go back and get to my actual family, the colony, and take them to safety. Yeah, he, he can now rescue his colony. Yeah. And so he gets there and, yeah, their colony has been... Their bunker has been kind of annihilated a few times. And it, we do see them in a different light because at the start we saw the colony... They're all brave, like there's a, there's a breach and they're yeah. all gearing up and yeah. it's all like planned and, and yeah. efficient. And, and when Joel comes in, they're all kind of looking a little bit... Like they're all cowering together. Scared and, and they see yeah. him and they go, oh, Joel. You know, yeah, no, yeah. They're, like, they're going, oh, thank goodness you're here, you type of thing, as opposed to, oh my God, I can't believe you survived. It's, yes. Yeah, it's it's good. And so then he, he gives a, a message out over the radio he does. to all the other colonies. He leaves a, a recording going. And inspires them to come out of their little bunkers out into the world. Mm. But it's not a very inspiring speech where he says... No, it's not an independent you, speech. If you don't <laughs> die, then you you probably learn well enough to make it. You think that, yeah, that's great wisdom there. You might make it to the mountains. My suggestion is you should. But look, if you don't really think you're going to, maybe you shouldn't, okay? Yeah. <laughs> it's don't. up to you. I went on my quest. You need to do your quest. If, if you don't die, then I guess you made it. Good on you. <laughs> um, and people hear this and you see some of the colonies kind of departing and heading north. And then it cuts to Clyde and Manau who are at the top of the mountains and they debate whether he's going to make it or not. And yeah, they kind the, of go, I reckon yeah, the snow spiders will get him. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So they kind of give us that. And that is the end. The end. Lovely. Yeah, it's a great little movie. So... Um, let us know what you thought about the narrative and whether it does fit the hero's journey. So, you know, do you agree with our analogy there? It's a fun um, kind of snappy, tongue-in-cheek, uh, very sophisticated-looking film, this uh, Monsters in Love. So I, I enjoyed it. It's a, I think you should sit back with a bag of popcorn and have a lot of fun with it. That's good. Um, um, my kids loved it too, yeah, so yeah, yeah, it my is wife liked it. PG. But I think it's kind of, I, I, I mean, when I did sit down to watch it, I did think, oh, is this going to be a bit too kiddy? But it's not, hey. Like, it's, no, no, it's, it's adult enough. Um, it's, I think it's because it has a slightly tongue-in-cheek approach yeah. that the less, 
mm, serious adult content, which would normally be considered childish, yeah. it played into the theme well. Yeah. So you didn't feel as if uh, you like you watched the the Harry Potter, particularly Harry Potter the first one, the movie, Harry Potter, the Harry Potter film, <laughs> the very first one. It is clearly a kids' film. Like it's as an adult, if you enjoyed the books, yeah, you could enjoy it, but. You know, the adults in, in that first Harry Potter film were dumb. Yeah. They didn't do anything. And it was like these 11-year-old kids solving puzzles. Like, it was just, it makes no sense when you're watching it as an adult. You're kind of going, yeah, no, nah, I don't think so. So, it's not like that if, with this film. This film, it, it does feel sort of um, appropriately toned and themed the whole way through. And I guess, like, where they get away with it, the violence is the... It's violence against monsters, you know, CGI, built-up monsters. So, you can rip a head off a monster and it's not... It's fine. And, and we don't... <laughs> it's very different. We see a, a shadow of a person yeah, dying, yeah. but... Yeah, we don't see rest. So, what about on your ladder? So, for me... So, each episode, we do a ladder that we kind of rank where... Uh, the film for this week's episode goes in and the suggestion of the ladder is really like a viewing one. So if you started at the top or you started at the bottom and you built your way on each rung of that ladder, you would have a pretty good taste of science fiction. So for me, Love and Monsters comes in at number 27 on my my ladder and that means it comes in after Spectral. Sorry. Yeah. And and comes in before Tau. So that's where I'm uh, putting it on mine. And the reason for that is I think... So it's about halfway through the ladder, really, essential. But I think it'd be quite cool if you saw something like Spectral, which is quite, you know, action-packed invasion sort of idea. And then you come into Love and Monsters, a bit more tongue-in-cheek, but still very apocalyptic. And then you kind of then go down the mystery line of Tau with the, you know, AI kind of intelligence. I think this one kind of fits in quite nice between those two. I, I pop mine in closer down to uh, Replicas, Darkest Dawn hmm. and Gora. Okay. If yeah, you yeah. remember Gora, is that quite outrageous yeah, Turkish <laughs> comedy? Yes. Uh, and it's it's a, it comes down out of that into Replicas. So it's a stepping stone. It's, uh, it had a feeling in some ways of Darkest Dawn, which if yeah. you remember was a very YouTube sort of inspired yeah, yeah. style. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Which again, like the Love of Monsters, had this the voiceover and had the 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 sketches and things, which sort of had a high school sort of feeling to it as well. I I think um, I think it fits quite nicely in there. Mm, sounds good. Okay, so let us know what you thought if you're keeping up with our ladder. Um, if you're watching either one of our ladders, so Surrey's and mine do deviate a little bit from each other, but yeah, let us know about your own ladder as well. Hit us up online and on the socials and let us know what your ladder is like. So sorry, what science part of Love and Monsters do you want to dissect? What- Oddly enough, well, we've already spoken about like mutations and giant monsters and mm-hmm. things, but something, like something we haven't gone over yet, which is the thing that I quite like is a very realistic scenario here, mm-hmm. which is gigantic, no, not gigantic monsters. Gigantic monsters, yes. Asteroids coming to destroy the Earth. Oh, yeah. Like, that is a genuine apocalypse scenario. Yeah, we keep hearing about this. It's of concern by scientists because it's essentially, a, it's not an if, it's a when. Yeah. When will the next event uh, occur, the extinction event occur? From uh, an asteroid crashing into the Earth. Yep. Uh, there's plenty of them out there. They're quite big. We, we've had some swing by. There was that 
uh umau mau 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 umau mau that wasn't terribly close to earth but it was big enough yeah. that if it did swing past earth it would have smashed us mm. we, you can forget about um 95% of the human population going it would have been more like 99% yeah. be crazy if not 100% because you get a big enough asteroid hitting the earth and you will literally just scorch the earth clear of maybe all that, life. Maybe that's how the alien invasion would work, is send an asteroid our way. Well, that's Starship Troopers, isn't it? Yeah. They're, they're chucking asteroids at us. Yeah. So, with that in mind, it's not just science fiction films that where they worry about these sorts of things, but rather NASA and governments have said, like the European Space Agency uh, and NASA have joined together and they said, well, what... What could we do? Like, seriously, what are the options? Yeah. And we've had a look at some of the options, and the option that first comes to everyone's mind is chuck nukes at it. Yeah. And that's because in our mind, nuclear weapons are very powerful. Yep. And, and they are. Yes. They suffer from a couple of problems. One is they're not as powerful as you'd think in terms of destroying massive rocks. Because the sort of rocks we're worried about here are hundreds of meters to kilometer sort of size. Yes. Uh, or or a couple of kilometers, like a 15-kilometer chunk of rock uh, will destroy all life on Earth. We might have enough nukes to just sort of do something to that, but one of the problems is commonly it is easy to forget about the laws of physics. And so the laws of physics come into play here a couple of ways. One, nukes aren't as powerful as they seem when they're in space. And that's because when uh, you detonate a nuke above, say, a city, mm-hmm. what you get is you get an instantaneous creation of uh, an enormous ball of super hot material. Yep. Uh, and that heats up all the atmosphere and you get this incredible shockwave and a blast of uh, emitted photons. Mm-hmm. And this shockwave is burning air, ionizing air. Right flashing out for hundreds of meters or even kilometers, killing and smashing stuff down. Mm-hmm. In space, you don't have any air. So when you get an explosion, there's no, you know, there's nothing to carry or transmit that force yeah, right. over distance. You're, the only force that you're going to get from that explosion is from the material that itself is exploding. Mm-hmm. And there's not much of that. Like if you get a, a nuclear bomb, it might be the size of a, a small car, yeah. and that's the only material that's carrying force. Now you've got some, you've got an electromagnetic pulse, you've got a whole bunch of photons mm-hmm. uh, which carry heat, but you don't have that blasting effect that you do in an atmosphere. Yeah. So if you launch nukes at an asteroid, you have to hit very close to try and evaporate or transmit that force into the rock itself. Mm. So that's quite difficult to do. Yep. But the other problem is, and this is where the other parts of physics come in, if you have um, some colossal, you know, 100 million tonnes of rock hurtling towards Earth at 24,000 kilometres a second, mm-hmm. which is not an unreasonable speed for it to be travelling at, you need a huge amount of force just to crack that up. Yeah. But if you were to do it like in um, Armageddon and you drill it in there and you boom you still have 100 million tons traveling at 24,000 kilometers a second. Right. You've just got it in broken into two pieces, but the distances that traveling, it's quite likely that the gravity of itself 
will keep it together in a lump and it will still hit the earth. Yeah. And when that much force, you know, you forget about the mass. Yeah. You're just talking about, um, you know, mass, the, the energy, which is the mass times the, the speed. And whether that's one piece or 50 pieces or a thousand pieces, mm. if that all hits, you still get a massive um, injection yeah. of energy into our atmosphere, which sets it on fire and destroys us all. Uh, it's much like, you know, you could get shot by a pistol mm-hmm. or a shotgun. Yeah. You know, yeah, shotguns, lots of little pellets, but you're still probably going to have your, your guts destroyed. Yeah. So you don't want to do it. So that, that's, that's the other problem with just trying to send a nuke up there. You're just not going to be able to um, disintegrate it enough mm-hmm. that it won't just still annihilate us. So what they really want to do, and the best bet that they've come up with is a slight deviation. Yeah. So if you can detect it far enough out, you only have to do a small change in its velocity uh, over the time. So they're saying, give us seven years. If we detect it 10 to 7 years away from us, yeah. we could send up a probe. It could take a good look at it and go, okay, here's how big it is, how fast it's moving, here's how to aim it, and then fire up a bunch of um, speed bumps, basically, yeah. to bump into it one after another on a particular angle because you don't have to stop it. No. You only have to slow it down or speed it up or knock it by a, a small fraction of an angle off course. Yes. And that's because in space, we're not only can you not be heard screaming, but the Earth is a tiny pinprick. Yes. And it's traveling very fast in an orbit around the sun mm. and moving through the galaxy, which means for an asteroid to hit us, it has to, it's a very small window of opportunity, which means if you just slow it down by just a f- you know, few... Let's just say that a few meters of, per second, it might be just slow enough that the Earth passes out of the danger zone yeah. and it and swings past us. Yes. And it only has to just swing past us. It doesn't yeah. have to, you know, miss us by 100,000 kilometers. It's just like, if it swung past 400 kilometers, uh, it would take out a couple of satellites and stuff, but it would, it would miss us. Yeah. So the European Space Agency and NASA have gotten together and said, well, let's, that's a nice theory. Does it work? What what are the parameters here? Because what's an asteroid really like out in space? What are they made out of? How will they react to being hit? Can we meaningfully change the trajectory of an asteroid? Mm. So they went and picked an asteroid, uh, the Didymos. So there's the Didymoon and the, the Dimorphos. So it's a dual asteroid system. So it's got a big one there. Uh, the big one, Dimorphos, uh, is... Let me see, how big is that one? So I'm looking on the dart.jhuapl.edu, which is a nice little website, which is all about this mission, which is called the Dart Mission. Uh, it is, uh, let me see, it doesn't tell me how much, how big one. Anyway, you've got one big asteroid and one small asteroid, mm. and they're orbiting. So listen, that's, that's a nice candidate, because what we can do is if we modify... The small one, we can measure its change in orbit, and that will tell us, based on the size and mass of that asteroid, how much force we need to hit by to move by how much. And that'll tell us how far out any given incoming asteroid we would have to hit by how much in order to change it by the amount we need. Yeah. So, yes, it was supposed to go up 
uh, earlier in the year, like 2020, uh, that got delayed for obvious reasons. And it's going up now. Let's see. They're sending up... It, it was going to be two separate satellites. One to observe and one to... Um, what do you call it? One, one to actually do the impact. So yeah, right. it's... Yeah. But they've changed that. Now they're just sending up one which has multiple smaller satellites on it. Yep. So it's launching November 2021 uh, or somewhere between November and February of 2022. And it should be somewhere between September and October of 2022 when it hits. So I'm looking forward to hearing about this because this is, this is a scenario depicted in sci-fi yeah. so often with a real experimental process, yeah. which is great. So they've got just this one Definitely. thing. They've got this one... That's about 1.3 meters by 1.2 meters sort of cube sort of thing. It's got a secondary camera which detaches a few days before impact and just starts filming and recording what's going on. Mm -hmm. And the main impactor itself then should be hitting this asteroid at 6.6 .6 kilometers per second, Jeez. which is, that's pretty fast. But it's, it's 11 million kilometers away. Mm -hmm. So it's got an ion thruster, which is solar powered. And if we remember from way back, a couple of years ago, we did the episode on um, uh, passengers. Talk about the ion thrusters yeah. there. And ion thrusters are great because they shoot out. First of all, they're electronically done, so there's no burning. So, And we can get electricity from the solar panels. It shoots out little ions, which don't weigh much, mm -hmm. but they travel really fast. Yeah, right. They have a thruster. They a thrust exhaust speed of like 11,000 kilometers a second or something. Okay. It's stupidly fast. Yeah. So the idea is that if you have that running for, I don't know, was it the best part of a year, mm. just constantly accelerating over 11 million kilometers, eventually it just picks up speed because there's no wind resistance to slow you down here. Mm. And we're going to launch it with a great big Falcon X heavy lifter, or the Falcon 9 by SpaceX, sorry. Yep. Great big rocket's going to shoot it out there. It's going to hit 6.6 kilometers per second, and they're going to measure it, and they've got like a, a predicted change in orbit and they're going to see how that works yeah, right. and that's basically going to inform us how far out we need to detect you know for any given mass and speed of incoming asteroid it will tell us how much force we have to hit it with and mm -hmm. how far out we have to be warned beforehand nice so it's a cool it's, mission yeah that's that's great and you see there's a picture even of, of how are they going to do check this orbit change? Yeah, right. Uh, yeah, it's the DART. Oh, there we go. There's the size of the Didymos system. So Didymos is uh, 780 meters across, which is nearly half a mile. And the smaller asteroid is 160 meters across. So it's not a big asteroid they're knocking, uh, but they have chosen that because they want to be able to see an effect. I suppose the question is with that theory, if you move something off target which saves Earth, is it possible to then hit another target that it would never have hit to begin with? So, for example, in our solar system, could then the possibility be that it hits Mars and annihilates Mars or something? <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that, I mean, and that, there's it saves us, but then I, would I that have that. Like, negative consequences to the solar system? But then I, what are the chances of that? 
when you're dealing with such volumes of Well, space. one of their targets would be to hit the moon. Yeah. Because the moon is very close to us. And again, we may not be able to apply enough change in yeah. momentum to miss us entirely, but maybe we can shift it enough so it falls into the path of the moon instead of us. Yeah. And yeah, we still probably don't want the moon to be hit by something that's no. like 15 kilometers across. No. But it's going to take it a lot better than we are because mm. the moon is still quite considerable in size. Yeah. It's interesting, isn't it? And then it becomes then, a weapon against uh, our alien invaders, isn't it? We just yeah. knock asteroids off towards them. That's right. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. But I do wonder then that what's the negative consequence of that? Like, if you knock the moon out... Uh, well, didn't we orbit. see that with the, the wandering Earth? Yeah. So, what happened? The moon got destroyed or yeah. something happened? Yeah. So, I, I don't I know. I mean, our tides would be affected... Yeah, it would take a while. Like when the, with the moon gone, if it just one day evaporated, it would take quite a while for that to have a, a real effect on us. Because the the moon's gravitational effect is not very strong. No, but it does affect the tides and that. But it'd be interesting if that would have detrimental effects to us. You know what I mean? Oh, would, yeah. would the planet just evolve a bit to it? You know, and well, yeah, it would eventually what would it do cause problems. Well, Gra- one one of the thoughts. The gravitational pull at all? Well, it's it's a very small effect, us, and and this is the problem with a lot of these ideas of like gardening by the moon and so forth, where it draws the water up, and it's like yeah. you know the gravity of the moon. You're more affected by someone walking past you than you are by the moon. But if the moon vanished, it's there twenty four seven, three sixty five days a year, like orbiting day after day after year, and it's the same thing as the the ion drive you know over yeah. the course of a year you can get something up to the speed of ridiculousness yeah and likewise so yeah the the moon disappears today we probably wouldn't notice it for days months years decades maybe in, maybe in 50 years 60 years time we'd find that uh the earth's crust is starting to fail because the moon tidal effect actually also affects the um what do you call it? The tectonic plates and yeah. earthquakes and so forth. It just keeps crunching it. And one of the thoughts about Venus, for example, it doesn't have a moon and its uh, rock shell renews every 30 million, 60 million years or something or other. Mm. It melts yeah, right. because it doesn't have um, these crust plates shifting and releasing pressure and, and it builds up and then you get a melting effect. Right. So quite possibly... Quite possibly, at some point, we would start noticing not so much the tides, although that would have an effect, killing off plants and animals and things, yeah. but we'd also have volcanic problems, mm. I think. Interesting. Probably wouldn't be our problem, it'd be our kids' problem. <laughs> so, isn't that the way we do things? It is. Yeah. That, that, Keep that, burning those fossil fuels. That'll, that'll be my grandkids' problem. I'd be dead before that's yeah. a problem. <laughs> yeah, anyway, but that's... that. I, I do, I love this... Um, real life sort of investigation of science fiction concepts or Definitely. is it the other way around that no this the concept was before the investigation because we had the theory of the um, asteroid killing the dinosaurs yeah yeah we all know though it was actually smoking <laughs> if you've seen we all know it was because they didn't have bruce willis to go up and like move and, and implant that nuclear bomb into the asteroid to save the dinosaurs. And isn't it amazing that it's actually easier to train 
an oil rig driller to be an astronaut than it would be to train an astronaut to drill a hole. Yes. If you're an oil rig driller, let us know if you reckon you could do an astronaut's job or if an astronaut could do your job. Because... That's a good point. I mean, people make jokes about that, but quite seriously, I have a feeling it might be one of those ones where each side underestimates what the other side has to do. So, yeah. So all the oil rig drillers who listen to us, get in touch. The problem with that logically is not so much do you need a... Sorry, it's not so much could a astronaut... You know, like maybe it would be a tough job for an astronaut to learn, but is it a tougher job for someone that's never been in space to learn how to yeah. be in a space suit? And I, I think that's and, the main problem. Like that's the problem, right? Like an astronaut is one thing because they're experts in their fields, but then they also take many, many years to become an astronaut. And it'd be a similar oh. problem, I think, to say, okay, let's get a, a football star to go play football on the moon. Yeah. Because... Yeah. It won't be hard to teach him to be an astronaut. Well, sure, okay, maybe you, you teach him enough to be an astronaut, yeah. but playing football on the moon will be totally different to, to doing it anywhere else. Oh, yeah. And I have a feeling that drilling is something that is just... Yeah. Uh, it's it's probably totally... I don't think... I, don't, I think the only way you could learn that would be to go practice on an asteroid. Yeah. Anything else would just not really work. But hey, it's the movies. It's there what you we go. can do. We it can is. have monsters, we can have asteroids, we can have mutant asteroids. It, ma- it makes for better drama, doesn't it, really? Yeah, it totally does. All right, well, I think that brings us to the end of Love and Monsters, episode 58 of Space Brains. We've talked a fair bit about the uh, ins and outs of Love and Monsters, so let us know what you thought about the film. Did you like Joel and Joel's story? Did you like the fact that it fitted into the hero's journey? Did you like the idea that it was a bit tongue-in-cheek and not really a surprise? Did you watch it with your kids, or did you watch it on your own? I didn't watch it with my kids. I just watched it. <laughs> but I did think afterwards that, especially like my oldest, would be would really enjoy it. Yeah, I, my my son was fully into these monsters. Yeah, I, it felt a bit inner child to me, a bit eighties in that the monsters were so, uh, yeah, amplified. Uh, they don't quite often do that, you know. We see these great sci-fi like something like Avatar, and they're invented, you know, monsters and stuff. But here we've got pretty much just our insects, but enlarged and you but know, cool. It's, it's awesome. It's what every entomologist wants them to be like. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, let us up, let us know on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, Twitter. If you spot me walking around Mandra, say hello, and you recognise me somehow. Um, email, uh, any of those options. Yeah, hit us up and let us know what you thought about us talking about love and monsters, and give us a suggestion for another film. Next episode, we will be doing. A total change, and we're going a little bit back in time. To is, oh, wait, wait, is it a science fiction film? Yeah. Oh, thank God. We're always doing science <laughs> fiction. Um, it is Internal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Oh, I've never seen this one. It's 2004, directed by Michael Gondry, a very interesting filmmaker, Jim Carrey, Kate Winslet, and Ethan... From From. Little Hobbit. Ethan Spark. No. What's his name? Ethan McGarry. 
I'm just thinking Ethan Hawke, but it's not Ethan Hawke. No, Elijah Wood. It's not Elijah. Ethan at all. I know. I'm thinking a Hobbit, Elijah Wood. <laughs> Elijah Wood. Sean Elijah Astin. Wood. Elijah Wood. I don't know why I got stuck on that then. So, yeah, Jim oh, Carrey, Kate Winslet, and Elijah Jim Wood. Jim Carrey, which is the one with, uh, what's his name? Andrew Carey. Not Drew Carey. Drew Carey, Andrew Carey. <laughs> we are getting the names all mixed oh, up tonight. Poor old Drew Barrymore. Poor Drew Barrymore. Please, neither Drew Carey nor Drew Barrymore. No, no, Take no. offence that I got your names mixed up, okay? So it's... just to, just to re-clarify. Oh, no, that's wanna... 100 First Dates or whatever it is. Yeah. Which is where she has no short-term memory. But this is a different one. Oh, this is totally to... different. This is yes. not a comedy. No. Um, and it's a very different styled film to what we've just looked at tonight. Well, that's, that one I was talking about was an Adam Sandler film, so yeah, it's not a comedy a... either. <laughs> this is not... <laughs> Sorry, Adam no, Sandler. we love Adam Sandler. Sorry, Adam. Um, so, yeah, go check it out in advance if you want. This is a very interesting film. I've seen it a couple of times, and I look forward to watching it again because every time I do, kind of does your head in. Um, yeah, and we will talk about it next time. Next time. See ya. Space Brains. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.